Does that ever fall off? Okay. Not in your experience. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Peace of the Lord be with you. Please turn in your order of worship to our New Testament reading, which is going to be the passage in which I preach to you from this morning. It comes from the book of Galatians, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He writes this, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This ends the reading of God's word. In this passage and with language and words that are used like just and justified, Paul tells us what it means to be right with God. What it means to be called a child of God. What it means to be forgiven for our sins. What do we mean by sin? Sins are just those things that we either do or don't do toward our Creator. It's those things that we either do or don't do toward those made in the Creator's image. It's when we break God's will expressed in the life of Jesus and in Scripture. What Paul is saying is this. Look, y'all. It just doesn't matter what your religious background is or your what kind of achievement of moral excellence that you've attained. Whenever he says Jew by birth, that's basically a shorthand for all that, right? Religious background, moral superiority. Paul's also saying, and it doesn't matter, in fact, how hardcore you have been in being a spiritual rebel, how deep your moral failure is. Whenever he says Gentile sinner, that's just shorthand for all that stuff. So Paul is just lumping everyone together. He says, doesn't matter how high or how low you are. Why doesn't it matter? And his answer is this, as it is in almost everything for Paul. Because it is by Jesus alone that a person is made right with God. It is by Jesus alone that someone is set free. That as Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth in the life. That Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Savior, the Messiah, the one who delivers, is the gift of life that God has given to deliver us from sin and to make us his holy children. And the way that we come to God is through Christ acting for us and us simply trusting in him alone. Now let's center this a little bit What's your most important need? Not your only need, all right? But your most important need as a human. The most important need we have as humans is to be God's friends. To be his children. To be called his people. But the problem, the challenge in that is that the distance between our ability to do this And our failure at doing this was so great, so unreachable on our own, that Jesus 
has acted on our behalf. Now, how great was this inability on our part? Well, think of it like this. It's like if you go to the foot of Mount Hood and you are asked to climb because there at the top is God. But you're dead. (laughs) You just have no capacity to actually climb. And that's actually what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, not just kind of dead like in The Princess Bride, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You can have all of the nice Arcteryx gear, the, the crampons, everything that you need, right? The right gear, the right equipment, that's religion, that's ethics. But without life in you, it's impossible to get to the top. So God acts. God acts. He gives us life in Christ. And we receive that life by trust, by faith alone in him. And you see, it's not just that Jesus ascends the mountain. It's really as if Jesus, who is God for us, comes down and then carries us back up. Jesus succeeds where we have failed spiritually and morally. He bears the responsibility and even the consequences for our failure, too. There's this wonderful passage that's so enigmatic. It's so kind of chewy and seems so tough to figure out what it means, but just as it, it, it's like a punch in the face, a refreshing punch in the face because it's so intuitively clear. It says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, talking about Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In a mysterious way, Jesus is identified with sin, and as a result, in a mysterious way, we are called righteous. Here's another way to think about it. Who is the greatest basketball player ever? You might have a number of names. LeBron, sure, make that argument. Magic, that's my, Magic Johnson, that's my personal preference. But here's a name that wouldn't come up In our conversation, Dickie Simpkins. Dickie Simpkins. Who is Dickie Simpkins? And why would would he even come up? Well, Dickie Simpkins is a real person. This isn't just something I made up for the purposes of an illustration. He played for the Chicago Bulls, in fact, in the 1990s. And you know he played in three different championship series. And he had zero points. Zero rebounds, zero minutes. Dickie did not even make it to the court. But you know what Dickie has on his hand? I don't know what he wears them on. Three championship rings that say that he is the best in the world. That he is numbered among those who are the best in the world. Why does Dickie Simpkins have those rings? He didn't do anything to earn them. Well, because probably the greatest player in the world, Michael Jordan, was also on that team. And as a result of Jordan's exploits and making a lot of points, a lot of minutes, and a lot of rebounds, he carried Dickie Simpkins and others. Jordan's efforts and abilities achieved what Simpkins never would have on his own. In a very pale, weak way, that's exactly what we have in Christ. Simply trusting in Jesus, who achieved godliness, true spirituality, who canceled our debt, gives us the status 
of righteous, godly, good in him. And it is freely given. It is not earned. Do you believe that? Or is it something you just kind of nod your head to whenever you go through the liturgy on Sunday morning? Did you know it can be yours? That it's offered to you? Maybe it is yours and you just need to restoke the flames of that fire. You see, this idea, this, this, this practice, this teaching of justification by faith, that you are declared just and holy and right and perfect and good and, and, and all of these wonderful things in the sight of God by faith alone, it's so important for us to hear, to hear again. Why? Well, some of us are anxious. Yeah, we can affirm all of that stuff is true. We can go chapter and verse. We can go to Genesis 15. We can go to Galatians 2. And we can show someone. We can even teach someone else that. But we privately doubt that it's actually for us, for me, because I'm such a screw-up. I fail over and over. And we believe somehow, some way, that our sin triumphs over God's work in Christ. Why? Well, because you fail. You fail one more time at trying to read your Bible and it just seems confusing. You fail at prayer because it just seems like it's just bouncing off the ceiling. You, you fail at not cussing at drivers on 205 or wherever your route takes you. You fail at getting along with your neighbor. And I don't just mean neighbor in the theoretical part, uh, you know, universe. I mean the person next door whose dog keeps digging under your fence. And you think, you know, God's had it with me because he sees the ways in which my heart is just twisted and crooked. And my first response is not my best response, but it just seems my most authentic. But I want to tell you this morning what God is reminding you. That the well of grace in Christ never goes dry. It is never emptied. And as a matter of fact, mysteriously and beautifully and spiritually, as more goes out, the level stays the same. Put it this way. Jesus didn't live and die and get raised again on your behalf to suddenly quit on you halfway through. And now listen. This may seem counterintuitive, but the great thing about you trying in the Christian life, even when you fail to be holy, and we should strive to be holy, we're called to that. But even in your trying, it is a sign. It's an indication that you're actually a child of God. Even in your broken, failing way. Because you see, before we were in Christ, we just really didn't think that much about striving for holiness, about pleasing God, about being in his presence. Remember that Ephesians 2 stuff, dead at the bottom of Mount Hood? You were dead, right? Nothing there. But now there are these embers. They might be small, but they are burning of a desire to just enjoy God, to serve him, to please him. And sometimes they burn hotter, sometimes they burn cooler, but they burn. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's Tim Keller, he's quoting someone, and I don't know who, but he said this. Even as you reflect on your life, think of how much worse you would be without Christ. So even in your striving and your brokenness and your failing, at least that's a movement 
toward Christ, toward Him. Would you take this word, you who are anxious and doubting as a Christian, that Jesus is for you now and He is for you always? He loves you and finds you completely good enough, just right. God is not nor will be unsatisfied in you. He doesn't regret the decision that he has made for you. So would you rest? Would you trust in him? Receive his word of life to you, the gift of life that he says, well done. It is finished. That is true words. But why else is it important for us to hear about justification by faith? Well, not only are some of us anxious, but then maybe on the other end of the spectrum, some of us might lean toward being prideful. Okay? We have kind of arrived. We can wear our doctrine, our theology, our understanding of Bible with a, a, a puffed out chest as if we have done something. We, we, and as a result, we kind of tend to think of others in distinction from us. Like, how can they be like that? But what does Paul say in another place? Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have? And y'all, if anything should sum up what it is to be a Christian, it is this. What do you have that you have not received? It's not rhetorical. The answer is nothing. All that you have, your whole status, your whole being is a gift from God. And so it's helpful if we tend toward this pridefulness, this looking down our nose at other people, to remember you can't be so good that you would have or did earn God's pardon. And likewise, no one is ever so bad that they are beyond being reached by God. You see, there's no room to scorn those who are not Christians, or really even to scorn those who are Christians, but especially those who are not Christians. See, the beautiful, and I would even argue the unique thing about Christianity, in distinction from any other faith commitment or view of the world, is that it is radical, deep, and broad in its understanding of God's mercy and grace. There's a New Testament scholar, he teaches at a place in uh, Scotland, I don't remember where, Eric, you might know, his name is Larry Hurtado, and he wrote a book, I want you to guess what it's about by the title. The name of the book is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That's exactly what the book is about. He's just talking about why is it that anyone would become a Christian? Because in spite of what it seems, Christianity, first rattle out of the box, was not cool. It is not something that was attractive. It was not something that just made sense. It was not intuitive. It was not just like, of course, let's go be Christians. In fact, it was kind of disadvantageous to be a Christian. It was not something that was looked on uh, that, that, that helped you climb the ladder socially. In fact, you were kind of a loser if this was something that you believed it was weird. The people who responded to the gospel were typically those who were on the margins. They were voiceless. They were not the people that you wanted in your group. And so it's like, well, why did anyone join this? It was weird. Just about the time that Western civilization was giving up on the idea that gods became men, all of a sudden, here it is. There's some people saying out of Judaism, God became man. 
that idea was not really popular. It didn't have traction. But it took. And Hurtado argues from his research that there were some key reasons why Christianity took root. And it wasn't because people were forced to believe this at the end of the sword, like it was the case with Islam. But there were some key reasons. One of them was this. And I want us to think about these answers, especially as maybe you wrestle with and the leadership of this church wrestles with, or just everyone here thinks about why don't people go to church anymore? Why don't people believe in Christianity in this country like they used to? And that that really is so much of what causes folks like Eric and I angst. Well, here's actually some answers to that, or at least some solutions to that problem. Christianity took root in the first three centuries, one, because... And I'm going to say it kind of in a nerdy way, and then I'm going to say it in a normal person way. And I have to say it in a nerdy way because I'm a nerd and I like that. Uh, But I'm going to hopefully say it in such a way that is understandable. And if it's not, then blame Eric for inviting me. Um, First thing is that Christianity invented the category of religious identity that was chosen and not assigned. In other words, it was previously thought that... You just didn't choose your own religion. Depending on your people group, your race, your ethnicity, or where you were born, that was what determined your religion. But Christianity first rattled out of the box. It made these universal claims, very broad and wide. It says anybody can come because everybody needs what's being offered. It doesn't matter your background religiously, morally, ethnically, any of that. Come because this is for everyone. No one believed that. That was not taught or practiced anywhere else in the history of civilization up to that point. And it was exciting. It was new. It broke and crashed barriers. So just right out of the gate, Christianity was multi-ethnic, multi-racial, welcomed all kinds of folks. If you don't believe me, there's this book called Acts. Read Acts chapter 13. It lists the backgrounds of all the people involved in the Antioch church. They're from all over. They would have never got together for a convention or anything. And yet now they're saying, well, I don't know about your background, but we all believe this. Jesus is Lord. So there was new uh, religious category, but there was also this. It's another reason why Christianity took root. That hospitality was expressed beyond your own kin and family and clan. Christians were just embarrassingly generous towards people who were not like them. Christians were especially good at helping to alleviate suffering. There was a guy named Julian the Apostate. That wasn't his birth name. Uh, he was called this. He was the emperor of Rome in the fourth century. He was actually he was called apostate because he was raised as a Christian, turned on it and said, we need to make Rome again. So he wanted to go but Rome great again. So he wanted to go back to the, the paganism and the worship of multiple gods and the tradition of Rome. And he, like is sometimes the case, someone converts out of something, they're familiar with it, they really hate it. And he hated Christians so much so that he called them atheists. But he had to recognize this about the atheists. He says this, atheism, talking about Christians, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. Ah, this galled him. And And through their care for the burial of the dead... It's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. 
He's like, I think this is all garbage. It's crazy. What do you mean Jewish rabbis, God? No, we need to go back to the, the Roman gods. But man, they love people who are not like them and they serve them. Oh, disgusting. And Christianity took root because Christians forgave their enemies and chose not to retaliate when wronged. You see, before Christianity came along, all cultures were more or less either shame cultures or honor cultures. And if, you're, you, you were, if your sense of honor was attacked, you would feel this shame and you had to make that right. And very often that came through, through revenge or retribution. And Christianity turned that on its head such that people, even as they were being put to death, made martyrs were forgiving the ones who were persecuting them. Forgiveness corrodes shame cultures, honor cultures, and it builds a grace culture. So what did living by faith look like? Well, the takeaway from all this is why did Christianity take root? Christians loved other folks who were not like them. They loved sinners. They welcomed all kinds of people. And they didn't look at the world out there with anger, with fear, with a sense of keeping folks at arm's length, but instead with a trust in God that recognized about themselves, yeah, we were like them at one time. So if I can come in, they can come in. So I just want to say for all of us here, if you're feeding your soul with anything that is making you fear the world, hate others, push away from folks, know that that's not coming from the Holy Spirit. Know that that's what Luther would call of another spirit. What the writer of Jude, which was the book of Jude, was a guy named Jude, would call satanic. And if you know that it's that, run from that, not from others. But why else is it important to hear about being made right with God by faith alone. Well, again, I'm going to put it in a nerdy way and then explain it. Faith is the mode of existence of the Christian life. What does that mean? That since the way that we became Christians is by faith, the way that we will grow in holiness, the way that we will grow in love, in Christ-likeness, the way that we will grow in enjoying God's presence is also by faith. And faith without faith-compelled works is dead. Saw a meme recently, and, it, and everybody knows this, that faith without works is dead. It's just empty. It's just talk. It's just jib-jab, right? Saw a meme recently where there was a, a picture of an open car, uh, truck, that, and the cargo hold of the truck was just completely empty. And it said, uh, the first delivery of your thoughts and prayers has arrived. And they were just kind of scorning that whole idea. Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Whatever's happened, thoughts and prayers are with you. But it's just met with nothing. Um, and it's just kind of a, there's actually something to that that we need to listen to. If we're just talking about something and not doing it, it's garbage. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way. 
in a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he's, but because he's already begun to save you already. And not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. That's why we're compelled to do good works. You know, one danger of teaching and talking about salvation by grace through faith alone, and actually one that the Bible itself recognizes, is that we have a tendency, like all truth, to, to twist it. And how do we twist it? Well, we'll do something like this. Any kind of effort or engagement with the world in a way that looks like pushing out, in a way that looks like trying to change the world, is really just a covert attempt for me to be self-righteous. And I don't want to be self-righteous because, boy, Paul spent a lot of time on that, so I'm going to do nothing. <laughs> That's how you know I'm really holy. And so we keep Christianity in our heads. We make it private about a personal relationship and not concerned about extending the influence of Christ to others, serving them by faith. Now, there's lots of ways, actually, to be faithful in the world, to have our faith in Christ extend out. But I actually, uh, I want to take my lead from Galatians here. And by the way, Galatians is a wonderful book because it talks about all of the things that people in the world right now want to talk about. Uh, it talks about issues of majority culture versus minority culture. Uh, it talks about issues of gender, sexuality, things like that. But I'm just going to point us briefly in the direction, and Eric's over there twitching, it's like, gosh, he's just going to open up a bunch of stuff. Uh, and as Eric knows, a visiting pastor is like a bear in the campsite, right? He just comes, he makes a mess, uh, gets into everyone's stuff, eats a little bit, and then leaves. Um, but I'm, I'm trying not to do that too much. And I want to go where Galatians points us, at least in this direction, talking about the issue of race. Now, the Galatian churches were sorting out throughout this, uh, the book of Galatians, and we've actually, when I've preached here once before, talked about this, we're sorting out who really counted as God's people and who didn't count. The majority culture in the church at this time were Jewish converts to Christ who still kept a lot of the cultural and ethic, ethical distinctions from their former religion. When the Gentiles came in, the majority Christians did what? You guys stink, you dress weird, you talk weird, you eat funny stuff, you don't have the right-sounding names, and they didn't truly receive them fully as brothers and sisters in Christ. In the American church, if I can just speak very broadly, we have sisters and brothers who are black, who we have not fully acknowledged and received as full and equal heirs. Well, how? I mean, that doesn't fit with our theology. None of us would explicitly say uh, we're racist. And, you know, we could get historical and just talk about ways that we've never let them worship with us or had leadership or anything like that. But I would say, and I'm speaking personally as well, one of the ways that we have done this is that we um, have been unwilling on our part as white Christians to simply listen to our black brothers and sisters when they tell us in humility and with love and with evidence that they still face discrimination in our culture and, sadly, even in our churches because they're black 
And they're not pointing out a hard racism. Not a person in here, I would imagine, would say, yeah, I'm, I don't like black people because they're black, or I think they're somehow less than us in the sight of God. But there's a kind of soft racism. In our denomination, in fact, the PCA a few years ago at our General Assembly admitted this and offered public repentance, publicly confessed the sin of omission, specifically that during the late civil rights era, pastors and leaders in the church simply did not speak up and call evil evil when black brothers and sisters were maligned and harmed because of their race. Likewise, the as a denomination and as a cluster of churches of which we belong, we acknowledged a need to proactively have minorities serve in leadership roles in our churches and seminaries, not so we could just simply be politically correct, but because we actually want to be kingdom correct. We want to be helped to see and to change ways in which our own cultural assumptions have presented walls and obstacles to other people, walls and obstacles to the work of the Holy Spirit and to the influence of the Bible in shaping what it is that we are doing as a church. So I'm asking as a minister, us, not me to y'all, but us together, who are mainly white Christians, not to engage in self-hatred. That would be foolish. That would be a lie. That would be against the gospel too. But to turn by faith with love for others, as our first brothers and sisters did in the first three centuries, to be willing to listen to hear and to charitably receive challenges from others for the sake of Christ's people. Living by faith means being put in the place spiritually where God works beyond our capacity to do something. Isn't that what salvation is about? We couldn't save ourselves. Isn't that what the Christian life is about? Living in such a way that we're trusting God to do things that we really can't do on our own? But we want to be in the place where we are stretched and challenged and see the Holy Spirit infuse our lives. And so God is simply asking us to live by faith in this area, to be willing to reach out to others, to serve them, to listen to folks different than us culturally and historically. And at least in this case, that starts with just doing that with other Christians. Martin Luther King, in his letter from a Birmingham Jail wrote this, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of attention, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. James tells us whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How could we press forward even beginning? Well, because we have the Holy Spirit. Because we have already been knit together as a community of love centered in Christ. Paul puts it like this. 
in Colossians 3. We have put on the new self. The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. And here, in the new self, there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. God help us. God is with us. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, would you please give us great thanks and praise as we think about and as we reflect and pray and worship that our salvation, that our being called right and good and just, which is a scandal in some ways to everything that is good and right and just, but is given to us freely on our end, but is given to, to us by you at great cost, but compelled by great love. If Christ sets you free, you are free indeed. And Lord, we are free. But we pray and ask that we would use our freedom for the furtherance of your blessed community, your church. That it might, even as Lewis said, shine out with just even faint beams of light that show that heaven is in us already. Help us to live by faith and not by sight. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand as we confess our faith together.